0: Number five now, we, we're five of our series of six. We've stayed the course, we've nearly made it to the end. One more week to go. The next series that we do will be uh, focusing on the person of Jesus, uh, the most uh, dramatic, at very least, the most dramatic and impactful uh, character in the whole history of the world. But of course, according to the Bible, he's much more than that. He is the son of God who visited this planet in order to save men and women. Well, we'll be looking at that. We're looking at his coming, uh, looking at who he was, his return. So there's a whole lot of stuff there. And that will be another series of six. Okay. Well, now, uh, there's our Way Up Course logo. You'll notice that the subtitle is making your mind up about life, the universe, and everything. That may be a a little bit grandiose, but we thought. uh, I mean, my own view is that actually, if you once decide whether there is a god or is not a god, and what kind of a god is god, uh, that is fundamental, and actually that does affect everything else. The whole, Your whole attitude to life, the universe, and everything switches around and changes. So I'm hoping that will not be too pretentious a title for our series. Okay, foundation questions, we're still on. And the one that we're doing tonight is, Who is God? Okay. Uh, I'm going to start in Exodus 3. I, I give you a bit of a warning. I've got a lot of Bible passages tonight. I don't make any... Um, Apology for that because we're looking at the character of God, and where are we going to go? Uh, The problem for the human race, as we'll see in a minute, is that we have a terrible tendency to work out our own view of God and think that is the reality. Well, what I'm proposing tonight is that we've got to go back to the source, to God's revelation of Himself, if we stand any chance of really understanding truly who God is. So Exodus 3 and verses 13 to 15. Uh, if you've got a Bible, do try and follow, but otherwise don't. I'm probably going to have a bit of a job to keep up with myself, to be honest. So there we go. So Exodus 3. Moses is, is in the desert. He's turned aside. He's seen a bush burning, but that is not consumed. And, he th- and interesting, as a side issue, he says, I'm going to have a look at this. And what that you see in Moses is a spiritual curiosity. He, he you know, and that is such a gift. You know, don't believe everything that people tell you. Go looking for it and sort sort it out for yourself. Um, And there, as he's there, a voice speaks to him out of the burning bush. Verse 13, um, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. I'm going to get the earlier part of the dialogue in a minute, but this part takes it up halfway through. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, because God said, I want to send you back to Israel and set them out of Egypt. And say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And remember, God's name expresses his character. To know his name was to know who he was. So God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Okay, so Moses uh, meets with God, and the first question that he's asking at this point is, what is your name? Who are you? God. And that's really, I thought, I've got to start there, because that's really the subject of our uh, talk tonight. And God says two things to Him, what the first one that I think stands out, certainly stands out to me, and it actually recurs in the Bible. God says, "I am who I am." Tell them, "I am has sent me to you." What does that mean? I guess it means that the, the, and interesting, the name of the the Jehovah word for God, or Yahweh, as probably more properly pronounced, also has a certain similarity with this. It means that the very essence of God's character is that he is, that he exists, that he's pre-existent, that he is before all things, that whereas everything else is derived, he alone is the one that created it all. See what I mean? No, nobody else can say that. We've all, we're all chicken and eggs. Well, we're eggs come from chickens, well, however you think about it, we've all come from something. Everything around us has all been created. Nothing is original. We're all derived. God alone is original. He's not derived. So when people say, well, who created God, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that's actually a non-question. Nobody created God. He is. He always is. In fact, I was reading recently of of one particular commentator and he said, if you wanted to give God a name, you could call him always. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? I quite like that. God always. He's always there. From the beginning, before all time, before anything else existed, there he was. Always. So you can take that if you like. I thought that was really quite neat and expressed to me something of of the eternal nature and sheer majesty and character of him who is all of us have come to be he always is he also goes on to say I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and you remember this is at the time of Moses you're about four or five hundred years after Abraham when God, you know, says effectively, I'm all, I'll be, I was there 500 years ago. I mean, Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. I don't know whether you, any of you remember that, but when, when he, he actually makes a reference and says, you know, that, that, that Abraham knew him. And Abraham was 2,000 years earlier. And, uh, and they, they look at him and God says, hey, you, you're not 30 years old. How, well, you're telling us you knew Abraham? Come on! And, uh, and Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, that's... they knew what he was saying. That is incredible. So as the Father, so he also is always. So you get this, what I think is profound revelation of the God whose, whose fundamental reality is that he, he lives. He is life. He is the source of all things. Okay, well, let's move on from that then. Now when you come to think about the character of God, as we've already hinted at, the the universal human tendency is to form a God that is comfortable to us, that we like. I mean, in the olden times, that expressed itself, and still today, sometimes, in idolatry. People fashion for themselves their own idols. That's the golden calf there, I think it's meant to be anyway, which actually occurred not long after Moses' encounter with God. Having met the, the incredible, invisible God that, that moved dynamically through the world, he then goes up to, to Mount Sinai there to meet with God, and while he's up there, the people get fidgety and and rest this, and when's this God coming down? We want want a God that we can see. And between them, they contrive to make their own God. They pull all their jewellery. I mean, it's valuable. It cost them. There was sacrifice. But they form this God, this this golden calf, uh, to be their God. Well, that's not common. Not a lot of people do that. But in Isaiah 44, verses 16 to 17, there is a, a commentary on this that... You see, I've got so many stickers in my Bible, I can't tell which one's which and where they are. But there you go. There you go. Isaiah 44 and verses... uh, I'm reading a bit less uh, than I put down here. Verses 16 to 17. It's a a brilliant passage um, because Isaiah is, is, is talking about the irony of people. Why would people make their own God? How can you have any confidence in your own God? And verse 16, he he talks about when when they fashion out of wood. Then half the wood a man burns in the fire, and over it he prepares his meal, and he roasts his meat, and he eats his fill, and he warms himself, and he says, "Oh, I'm warm! I I see the fire." You know, so he's gone out in the woods. He's chopped himself down a tree. Half of it he makes firewood to keep himself warm and to cook his meal, and then from the rest he makes a god. What? You can hear him say, what are you, what are you doing? How do you, how do you have any confidence in that? He bows down to and he worships and he prays to it and he says, save me. You're my God. And uh, I mean, that's just one there. But if you look up in, on, the, on the internet for, for images, graven images of gods and things, there are millions of them. They're still, they're still around in the world. Actually, you go to any garden centre and you can buy yourself a Buddha. No problem. Stick it in your garden. And loads and loads of people are doing it. i I'm, I'm noticed that any, any fashionable house now generally has a Buddha in it. I think, what are we doing? He was only a bloke. Why would we... But it's this, this universal human tendency to pr- to produce my own God and somehow to impute to that God some kind of power and influence in my life. The Bible says don't do that when you realise there is the living God, there is the great I am, the, the one that has fashioned it all, that brought planets and galaxies into motion. Why would you waste your time on some pathetic thing that you shake? Now here's an interesting one. Mo- what about modern man? Okay. You You've got no Buddhas in your garden. You've got none of this and none of that. Uh, what else is there? Well, that, uh, that, I mean, I just got that picture. I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, and, uh, I mean, in a sense, whatever I make the centre of my life, that ultimately becomes my idol, I guess. That's fair. You might want to debate that, but, I mean, I think that's a fair thing. Whatever I make the centre of my life becomes the thing that I ultimately worship. I worship make that the focus and the center point. And I mean, there's some interesting ones up there, you know, career and family and money and pleasure, fame, success culture, power, approval, comfort. I mean, how many people give themselves to that? How many men climbing up the ladder of achievement in order to get somewhere they don't quite know where? How many, how many people give themselves for their family, for their little groups, this is what I really care about, this is what I'm gonna give myself to? The answer is none of these things, be they ever so noble, are not big enough for us. They're not adequate to be, to be, to be made the center they have to find their place around the one that is the centre for, for whom we are made. So modern man has his own idols or we invent God in our heads. There's a few possibilities of what we might do. There's the, um, the the kindly grandfather. I know some people that are totally wedded to God as the kindly grandfather. I mean, grandparents are good. They, they're not so strict. They're a bit more mellow. They don't tell us off so much. You know what I mean? They don't make demands upon us. You can get away with nearly anything with a grandfather. I mean, we think, God's probably like that. I'm, I'm happy there. But of course, you're going for a shock. He's not. I mean, I would say he's kindly, but he's certainly not grandfather. The Bible says he's father. A father is stricter. A father is charged with the responsibility to raise his children, to raise them right. And God is a good father, kindly, of grandma, great provider. People who look God as a kind of uh, provider for all their needs. And, you know, I've known people that have completely spiralled away from God when God didn't answer their prayer over something. But he should have done. Why didn't he answer my prayer? Why didn't God do what I wanted him to do? Because he's God. It's, it's the other way around. God doesn't centre his life around you. If he did, He wouldn't be God. See what I'm saying? So there you go. So this is, this is all introductory. Distant uncle. Like the kind of uncle that you hardly know the name of and you never see, lives far away, never visits, but you're aware that he's there. So for a lot of people, probably for modern man, that is often a model. You know, maybe there is a God somewhere, but, you know... He doesn't take any notice of me, so I, you know, we agree to not have a lot to do with each other. And so, you see how easy it is without actually fashioning a wooden idol and sticking something on your sideboard, you can actually have within your heart a kind of a model that is not the reality. One day we will face the reality, we will face God as He is. So, it's worth knowing who it is that we're going to face. Okay, so tonight. I was going to say six and I've only got five fingers so there you go I've got a dilemma to start with Uh, tonight we're going to look at six aspects that are fairly recurrent through the Bible so I feel pretty confident about them it's not a total picture of God but it is I hope help to some extent first thing I think you can say that the Bible says about God is that he is holy we're going to try and unpack that and see exactly what that means second thing that God is righteous thirdly God is faithful. Fourthly, that God is love. Fifthly, now this this might surprise you, God is meek. How could you be a whopping great big God that rules the universe and be meek? Well, that's an interesting question. I should try and give an answer to that. The Bible does seem to indicate that God is meek. And joy, the joy of the Lord is your strength, the Bible says. Heaven is a very happy place. See, I mean, a lot of people think hell's a happy place because you can all go there and be extremely naughty and tell all your naughty things to one another and have a great time of naughty fellowship. No! It is the most miserable place in the entire universe or outside the universe. Heaven is full of joy. Okay, so let's have a look. Holiness, we'll go back to our picture of Moses by the burning bush. The root meaning of the word holy, if I'm in a small group, you know, I often ask people, you know, what they understand by that. And you get words like pure and, you know... It's it's quite difficult to find another word that means the same as holy. You think that? We all know, we all kind of feel we know what holy means, but the, the actual root word, that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is translated holy, is simply the word to mean separate, different, apart from, unique, like nothing else, in a league of one. So when the Bible says that God is holy, it's saying actually there is no you can't compare him to anybody. You know what I mean? If you the moment you try and compare him, you're you're gonna probably slip into error. So so God is God is alone and unique and like no one else in all the world. And and if somebody is dedicated to be holy, then that means they've been set apart to be separate, to be belonging to God. If, if you, you, know, In the temple in the Old Testament they had utensils and stuff that was part of the furniture of the temple that was said to be holy and it was dedicated and it was set apart and it wasn't used for common, ordinary use. It was special uh, in order to be used for God. So that's the meaning of the word holiness. So when we go back to Exodus chapter 3, the early part of that bit that we were reading earlier... There we go. Exodus chapter 3. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. This puts it in its historical context. The priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and I will see this strange sight why the bush doesn't burn up. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am, do not come any closer, God said. Now, I mean, they're not in a church They're not not like in some sort of special place, or you would have thought so. But he says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Because God was standing there. He he transformed it by his presence. Because he was there, it became holy because he is holy. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And What's actually going on here? Well, I mean, God says to him, don't come any closer for a start. So there's something about God's holiness, which is a bit unapproachable, and we come across this on a number of occasions. Take off your shoes, so that you need a certain amount of respect and, you know, and, and understanding that you're coming into the presence of one way beyond you, out of your league. Uh, Moses. The place that you're standing on is holy ground where we've already sort of touched on it. It was holy because God was there. God made it holy by his presence. And we find, interestingly enough, and again, quite, he's afraid to look at God. He's suddenly overwhelmed with a sense of his, of his own inadequacy. And, and, uh, and in fact, again, we get that later on with Isaiah. I, I shouldn't be here. I'm out of my depth. I'd like to go somewhere else, please, if I possibly could. I wish I hadn't turned away to look at this bush that is burning, but is not consumed. So you get a good picture of it there. But then later on in Mount Sinai, I mean, that is actually a picture of what I believe is the actual Mount Sinai. You'll notice that it's all black on the top. It's black on the top because the Bible says something over 3,000 years ago, God descended upon it in fire. I mean, we'll read that. Uh, in just a minute, but uh, let's have a look and see what it says in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 16 through to 19. And on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. That must have been some kind of a trumpet blast. I can imagine that. Really awesome. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. The people were already trembling, mind you, but it's getting louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him and then of course it goes on to describe it I mean people have actually gone up that mountain and they said that it's just an ordinary mountain with all the rocks and stones on it but they've all turned black it's like they've turned to obsidian they've kind of got glazed over like they've been subjected to some enormous heat so I find it interesting that the mountain is still there today where God came down it's hardly known it's actually now been fenced off by the Saudis so that nobody can get near it because it's supposed to be an ancient monument. Well, it surely is an ancient monument, no doubt about that. But, ma- but you get the sense here of massive power, of God that is out... You know, it's, it's, I think the word really, you, the, it's the common is out of our league. You know, you often, you often say things are out of your league, don't you, when you're, when you're in front of something that is beyond you. That, that, is the, that is the sense of holiness here. Massive power and uh, an unapproachable purity. Don't come near, says God. If you come near, you will probably die. Yeah, I mean, God doesn't want to kill him, but there is something incompatible. There is something about his holiness that makes us burn and sizzle. That's why Jesus had to come to open up a way. Without that way, we could not even think about coming. Do you see what I'm saying? So this holy quality of God is so fundamental, it seems to me, to understand it. And then as you go on in, in Exodus, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and he called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people. So they do not force their way through to see the Lord. and many I don't think they were going to force their way through to see the Lord. I think they were all still trembling. They were in trembling mode. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. I mean, there's something really awesome about this. I mean, we often use the word awesome today. Young people use it all the time. And about things that are not really all that awesome at all. But this is awesome. This, this, this is something that strikes an uh, um, amazing uh, sense into us. And Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and I mean, I, I, I just read this bit here in Exodus 34, having been up with God and received the Ten Commandments, I mean, that's actually Charlton Heston. You knew that, didn't you? That's not, that's not really Moses. <laughs> I should be a bit disappointed, actually, if Moses doesn't look as good as John Heston, but there you go. <laughs> um, uh, verse 29 of, uh, of, of Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. I mean, they do that really well in Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. I mean, uh, Saul has to come down with his hair all swept back and whitened, um, you know, and his face like shining like a light bulb. It's really great. But that, that is actually the picture that the Bible gives. And Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses. His face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Somehow the holiness had rubbed off on him. They thought, whoa. What, what is it with this? He's not aware of it. Uh, but it had rubbed off on him and shone in his face. And Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. And afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all... They obviously overcome it. All the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. Then Moses finished speaking to him and he put a veil over his face. So they hadn't totally come to terms with it. And what is it with this man? You know, they were uncomfortable. And... There is something about that. You know, that, that's why often people, to some extent, feel slightly uh, awkward in the presence of God. I mean, it's not easy. You, you can't just rush in before him. And you can get a sense of that here. Okay. Uh, Isaiah in the temple shows the same kind of things. I've just kind of run through uh, a few passages here. But Isaiah chapter 6 tells of his calling to serve God. And he he goes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. The the train of his robe filled the temple and above him were seraphs, each, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts of the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cry. I, do, I wish I hadn't come in here this morning. Uh, what have I done? You, you get the sense of it. It's a man, it's too big for me. And, uh, and And the the angels are flying around the place. The whole temple is full of it. And this majestic vision fills it. And and the angels call and the thresholds shake. And I can imagine that Isaiah was thinking, what happens if the guy on the throne speaks? (laughs) This is gonna it'll bring the place down. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And he knew what he'd seen. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Universal response to the holiness of God is, is fear and trembling. I don't know when I want to do it. But the glorious thing that happens, of course, as he comes into the presence of God, is that he is cleansed and redeemed. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I send me, what transformation! You know, he'd gone from a trembling wreck. Woe is me. He's saying, "I'll go, I'll, I'll go." And what? I mean, that touch was was the mercy and the love and the grace of God, which trust came across to him there in the temple. So that passage there, you notice his experience of awe. That, that's universal. That's what holiness does. Holiness gives us a sense of awe. And you see, often people get it in nature. You know, they kind of look at a view or a sunset or a mountain. But that's nothing. That is nothing compared with the creator of nature. As you realise, you know, if you, if you look out at the amazing, awesome things that God has created, that is nothing to the creator himself. Okay, there are a few other passages. I'm, I'm not going to take a long time on them. I'll kind of uh, brush through a bit. Isaiah 40 and verses 21 to 26. Let me just uh, read that one. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground. than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. so the holiness of God is, a, is a, in one sense an immense power, but it 's also purity there's moral quality to it there's also radiance and glory and an otherness that, uh, that blows our minds away And, uh, and uh, as I say, we often try and reproduce that. you know if you go to a pop concert. They will put you like banks and banks of whopping great big speakers, massive amplifiers, flashing lights, loads of color. What are they trying to do? They're trying to, they're trying to reproduce the glory. God doesn't need any of that. He has it in himself, in his own self. But you can see that within the heart of every man, there is a yearning to worship and to give myself. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, Your ways are not my ways, neither are your thoughts my thoughts, says the Lord. So the Lord can bridge over to us, but there is a gulf to bridge over. Holiness means that he is not quite like us. In Revelation 1 and verses 12-18, to we see Jesus, the risen Christ, pictured for us, and his hair like, like flames of fire, and his garments shining and glistening. The holiness of God that comes right through in that. The key to understanding, this is my final point, I've taken a long time because I think holiness is quite key. Uh, The key to understanding God's character is to realise that he's actually beyond our understanding. If that doesn't sound completely double-dutch, to realise that it's only as he reveals himself to me, as he says, this is what I'm like, it's only at that point that we really get some sense of it. So holiness, I believe, is pretty key. Righteousness. Number two, that's also quite key. It doesn't get spoken of such a lot. Uh, that's a, a passage there from Amos chapter 5. Take away, from, uh, take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. God the Bible says, is a righteous God. He is actually the author of right and wrong. He is the one that gave us our conscience. He's the one that gives us our senses of right and wrong, although I have to say it's not always totally accurate. God himself is passionate about righteousness, and he's created a universe which is moral. That doesn't mean everything works out according to his will. But ultimately, as you sow, so you reap. It will ultimately come right in the end according to God's purposes. And we carry that passion with us. It's a bit distorted sometimes. But I can remember, even as a child, if I was ever punished unjustly, I, found I, I rose up inside. I was so cross. Anybody ever, ever felt that? You, you, we feel that it, it, all through our lives. So, I mean, we're very conscious of a sense of right and wrong if we are unjustly treated. Do you know what I mean? We, we kind of... So it's quite deeply in our character. I say we are a bit self-orientated, so it's sometimes distorted. But I think we can sometimes feel it for other people too. You know, if you see, if you see somebody being attacked in the street, you, you rise up inside. You know, you might be scared out of your wits, but you want to do something about it, you want to see, you know, we loads of the, the dramas that we watch are moral tales, where we expect that the good people are going to be vindicated and the bad people are going to get their comeuppance, don't we? You know what I mean? You ever watch a film where it doesn't happen like that, you don't like it? I, I don't want to watch a film where they don't, so... Deeply in us, there is this moral sense, this planted by us by God who is right. The difference is, however, He defines what it is. We don't. We think we do. You know what I mean? I, I know what's right. No, you don't. You know, we often only know a little bit of it. God alone understands. Some people say, well, if I ruled the world, it wouldn't be like this at all. I don't know what God's doing, doing this, that, and the other. What do you know, little man? What, why would you say that? God is, the, God is the one that is ultimately good. He created goodness. He defined it. He just told us what it is. So righteousness then is key. Amos chapter 5. Uh, has a, again, a, a, there's such a lot of good passages here, so bear with me. I mean, it is the Bible, so I thought, well, actually, it's better than me rattling on, isn't it? I'll just, just read you a whole load of Bible tonight and you'll be all right. Uh, so verse 10, you... You hate the one who reproves in court and despises him who tells the truth. This is is God, through the prophets speaking to his generation where injustice was rife, where the poor were often oppressed. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. You will get your comeuppance, says God, For I know how many are your offences and how great your sins. You oppress the righteous and take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore a prudent man keeps quiet at such times, for the times are evil. When the good are silent and the evil make a noise, that's what was happening in those days, and you get a sense of God. God hates oppression. He hates people bullying and pushing down other people. God hates that. God hates lying and deceit and untruth. God hates hypocrisy. God hates people pretending and not actually being themselves. God hates evil because he is totally good. God hates corruption. So, I mean, I mean that's the negative way of putting it. God loves goodness and all the other things. But God hates all this stuff that corrupts and spoils and damages. And, of course, you, you've got to say, we've all got a bit of that in us. We're all a bit naughty when nobody's looking. So what are we going to do? You know, what do we do with the righteousness of God? What, what, doesn't that put me under condemnation? Yes, it does. We we have to face that first of all. I mean, the Bible talks about heaven and hell. What do you do about heaven and hell? They say that nobody ever speaks about hell anymore, but Jesus talks about it a lot. He says that actually the choices that we make in our life have an end goal to it. There's the sheep and the goats. There's one way or the other way. That's not because God's not loving. God is totally loving. It's the way that it has to be because of his righteousness. So if I read these verses here in Matthew 13, uh, hopefully that'll kind of make it clear. Uh, Matthew 13 and verses 48 to 51. Uh, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen poured it up on the shore. And then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets. They threw the bad away. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. So according to Jesus, the world is moving towards a denouement, a harvest. It's called different things, but harvest is one of them. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace. And there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked? So that's, that's pretty heavy. But you, you can't actually escape it. God is totally moral. There is going to be no badness in heaven whatsoever. It won't get through. It's like a a net that stops it getting through. So what is to become of us? Well, I want you to look at, at Luke chapter 12 and verses 1 to 7. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so they were trampling on one another... Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy is that word hypocrisy again there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known what you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops it's all going to be blown out out wide I tell you, my friends, now this is the key bit, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that can do no more, but I will show you whom you should fear. And that's in the sense of awe, respect. Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, You know, you could be feeling quite depressed now. Yeah, this is not is not sounding good. I have a feeling I would not make this through. I don't think I'll pass my morality exams when it finally comes to it. But then Jesus goes on. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. In other words, though by God's righteousness I'm struggling, I will not make it through, am I not worth more? Am I not worth more? Will not God bend over backwards to save me? Anyway, of course he will. The Holy Spirit is constantly striving to reach men and women and to bring them home. The Pharisees then were full of... Hypocrisy and deceit, and the harvest for those that refuse to be transformed, according to the Bible, is hell. To be out of the presence of God, to be alone, cast out. Fear Him. Respect and trust and awe is appropriate to God and God alone, not anybody else, not men. Don't be afraid, however, He says, you are worth more. Before God's righteousness, we all fall. In John 3, 13 to 17, sorry, 16 to 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. The Bible teaches that in Jesus, God's righteousness Holiness and love all came together and were fully satisfied and he took our place. We're going to say more about that when we get into the next thing, but I wanted to to speak the righteousness of God against the background of the love of God who loves to save and will save all those who turn to him. Okay, so righteousness, holiness, faithfulness. Faithfulness is God's rock-like quality. Totally reliable, absolutely dependable. His word is his bond. He keeps it through. The whole reliability of creation is a reflection of the faithfulness of God. It's not that the laws of science you know, are stable. It's that God is stable. God makes stuff happen for us, so we live in a secure world where everything happens the way that it uh, happened yesterday. The, su- the sun keeps... Well, it it moves through space, but I mean the earth spins round the sun through space at the same speed every year, pretty much, keeps coming round, the seasons change regularly. They can tell you in a hundred years' time where all the planets will be, in the constellations, because the world that God has created is stable. Spring follows winter, and, and autumn follows summer, and so on and so on, because God is a faithful God. The laws of science, I mean it's not an accident that science exploded in the Western world which was fundamentally Christian. It, it exploded in the Western world because there was a sense that God was the author of creation and made everything the way that it was and it would, be, it would continue that way and it would be stable in that way and so it was possible to study it and so on. It's also the stability of God's character God's morality, he doesn't change his mind. I mean, what would you do if God were fickle and said one thing one day and another thing another day? And one day you could get through with that and another day. You know, a bit like the government. It God's not like that. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is also true to his word. His word is secure. And in that basis, we can have relationship with him and trust him and know that he will keep his word, though all else Fail. Without faithfulness, we end up in a kind of Alice in Wonderland kind of world. That's the kind of world that we'd be in. So, I mean, I put both those pictures in there. I wanted, to get all the, I wanted to get the Queen of Hearts in there as well uh, on that. Alice in Wonderland world is a, is a world that is completely unreliable. You never know what's going to happen. Alice turns up, you remember, to the Mad hap- had his birthday party, but it's not a birthday party, it's an unbirthday party. Uh, And uh, the Cheshire Cat appears and disappears at will, suddenly pops up here, suddenly pops up there. There's no kind of stability in it. Alice grows and shrinks uh, according to what she drinks and a potion she eats and so on and so on. So it's an imaginary world where nothing is reliable and the Red Queen, who seems to represent the only authority in the world, is capricious and vain and completely unreliable. Uh, that will be the, so the fact that we live in, the world that we live in, is a reflection of who God is, of his character, of that which he has brought forth. <clears throat> Many Bible passages reflect that. In Psalm 85, there is a passage that brings a whole load of these qualities uh, together. And verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 85, love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other, faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. You've got half my description of God in those two verses there in the Psalms. Righteousness and holiness and faithfulness and love are all there in those Psalms. In Isaiah 42, it talks of Jesus, the Messiah who will come. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. In faithfulness... He will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. Do you ever look out in the world and think, where's it all going? What is going to happen? You know, This and that and the other and natural calamities and so on. The Bible says he will not, he will not fail nor be discouraged but will accomplish all his purposes. Okay, number four. So we've got holiness, righteousness and faithfulness and love, which I think is probably the best known. Uh, i put the other ones first because it's often the only one known. And people have got a slightly sentimental view about the love of God. You know, a bit like, which tends to lead you towards a grandfatherly look. But actually the Bible um, says it's much more than that. And uh, we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, okay, in... Uh, in 1 John four sixteen, it actually says God is love. Not just that God is like love or that love is one of his qualities. God, love is the defining characteristic. Everything he does is for love. His, his love is, is expressed in his faithfulness and his righteousness and his holiness is all out of his love. And in Hosea chapter 3, there's a couple of verses, passages here from Hosea, but Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 uh, The Lord said to me, This is the Lord speaking to the prophet, Go and show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cake. So here is unfaithful Israel, and, and God likens his love for Israel as a love of a man for a woman. And you know what I mean? a love of a grandfather of children may be benign and you know easygoing and mellow and so on, but a love of a man for his wife has passion. It, it has demands. He asks something of her. He doesn't just say, please yourself, do what you like. So the Bible says God's love is like that. God is passionate. The Bible says he can be a jealous God as well. It's also like the love of a a father for his child. A bit further on in Hosea chapter 11, there is a, a quite, well, I find it quite a moving passage. When Israel was a child, God says, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. You know, the kind of heartbreak of that. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. But it was I that taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. They did not realize that it was I who healed them. So God is like a father to the people, and he carries them like a parent carries a small child, and so on. They didn't realize it. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt? Will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. And then God kind of gets, gets angry. Because, you know, you can get angry with your children, can't you? No. Nah. Well, you probably can and God says, saws will flash in their cities, will destroy the bars of their gates, put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even if they call to the Most High, he will by no means exalt them. God says, it doesn't actually say, blow you all. Excuse me saying that. You know, it's like the Lord is completely fed up with them. I've looked after them and kept them and nurtured them and led them. Like a parent cares for a toddler all through the difficult years. And then, and then he goes on, but how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Abba? How can I make you like Zeboyim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I turn and devastate Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you, and I will not come in wrath. So the the story of Israel is the story of God's love and mercy triumphing over their disobedience and rebellion for God loves them as a father loves a child and so God uh, loves us and longs for us to come follow him. You'll notice as we've already said it's not the love of a grandfather. God's love is something deeper and more passionate and more beautiful and fuller than that. We are preoccupied by love. It's stamped in our character as all these characteristics of God are. We find them again and again. I, I typed into the internet for images of romantic novels and I got that montage of loads of them. I haven't read any of them. Uh, probably you haven't either and it's probably not worth looking at them. But I mean, when you go from books, you go to films, there are films that are full of love interest in one way or another. Films and novels are full of it. In fact, human beings are captivated by it. Most films have some sort of romance, some sort of love. Sometimes it's love of parents for children, and, but there's always relationship and love there somewhere. TVs and soaps have the same sort of thing. There's always a kind of love interest. We're fascinated by love, but we're not very good at it. That's the, that's the trouble. You know, we're not good at faithfulness. We tend to not last the course. We get tired and fed up and you know, so on and so on and so on. But we are captivated by the hope of love. God's love created the universe. God's love brought forth Uh, man. God's love chose Israel. God's love sent Jesus to the earth. So God's love is the great burning dynamic power that brought it all forth and will bring it. Somebody said, well, why did God create us? God created us because he started with a family and wanted to enlarge it and gather more people into his family. The whole story of history is the story of a romance of God who loved us and came seeking us and still seeks us and will do to the very end. Uh, you see it particularly in Jesus uh, and I've got a couple of passages here which I've always found powerful in Luke chapter 19 where Jesus comes uh, near to Jerusalem and he sees the city and he weeps over it. And he says, If, even, if, even, you, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They would dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not know, you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. That was what happened. And uh, Jesus is going to be crucified but, uh, but weeps over the city. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, actually, that's just what I think God would do. And, uh, and of course, uh, in, in Luke 23, 33 to 34, uh, Jesus, you remember, hanging on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They haven't got a clue. They don't know. They don't understand. Father, forgive them. So there is love supreme meekness, I'm going to run through these now, running out of time, sorry about that, you're all doing really well. Uh, Now you might say, and some of you did raise eyebrows a little bit when I put meekness there on the list, it's not a major theme of the Old Testament, I suspect probably because we find it hard to conceive how you can blend those those different qualities together. And one of the things that has struck me is that, that that God's character is so paradoxical, it is very hard for a human being to even contain all these qualities. We tend to sort of slip into one rather than the other. (coughs) But there are clues. (coughs) In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. You think, well, well God can't be proud if he doesn't like proud people. Well, so it seems to me, um, Moses, in numbers 12, one to three, is said to be the, the meekest man of Earth on Earth, the humblest man on the earth. He was chosen by God to be a leader of people, but he was chosen because he was a meek and a humble man. So God is not, is not strong on pride in Luke chapter 1 and verses 51 to 52, where the whole, the whole thing is about God having thrown down the proud. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and so on and so on and so on. So God seems to be Geared away from proud, assertive people. Again and again in the Bible. And then he sends his son into the world and sends him in a stable. And you think, well, that's got to say something about the family. You know, he could have managed a palace. He could have managed a bit more status. He could have given a bit more money, a bit more wealth, a bit more material support. He could have done all those things, but he did none of those things. And uh, he, he sent him and a baby, and, and you'll notice that when he moves among men, his own character in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, who are labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. So he's, he actually says to himself, I'm meek and lowly in heart. His actions, There you got him actually washing the disciples' feet. He says, I'm your Lord and Master, but I'm washing your feet. I want you to wash one another's feet. I want you to live out what I'm modelling to you here. In Matthew 5 and verses 3 to 5, uh, we find that his Sermon on the Mount starts with a song to humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. He doesn't say, blessed are the rich. We're going to really bless the rich people. Blessed are those who are assertive. And grab it and go for it. You know, like you might do in some kind of, you know, professional training. He says, blessed are the poor. So it runs all the way through like a, like a thread. And here's something to think about. First of all, if God were not meek why would he have anything to do with us? Well, oh, that's a thing to ponder on. You know, what am I? What are we? We're, but as far as we understand from what the Bible says, God is holy and beyond us, far beyond us. Why would he reach down to our level? Why would he come among us? Why would he live here and serve and die here? Why, why would he do that? Uh, unless there was something deep in his character that did that. And here's a second thought. If proud is holding an exaggerated view of yourself, God can't do that. you what I mean? He's already so big. I mean, he can't, he can't exaggerate how big he is because he's already very big. See what I'm saying? He can't be proud, he just is. He is what he is. And he's majestic and ground, but he has a meek... How do you you combine that all into one character? Last one, joy. I thought they were pretty cute. We learn to laugh early, and joy is more than laughter. I know that. But laughter is infectious. You can catch it. It spreads around. Human beings are unique in our capacity to laugh. I mean, I've noticed cats have got a permanent smile on their face, but I've never seen a cat actually burst out laughing or see the funny side of things. Laughter is good for us, joy is good for us, and it brings healing to our souls and no other creature laughs like we do and we are made in the image of God. So it seems unbelievable to me, even if there were not other passages in the Bible, that when we get to stand before God, we suddenly find that humour was a complete mistake and he's not like that at all. He's really serious. I have a feeling that we will find there is merriment in heaven. That combined with all these other things— with righteousness, holiness, love, faithfulness, everything else—all these phenomenally worthy characteristics—there is a there is a measure of pure bubbling joy. There is a passage in Ezek, uh, in uh, Ezra uh, five ten, I think that says. Never mind. It says, "The joy of the Lord is your strength." I love that passage the joy of the lord is your strength uh, that was a good picture i thought i hope the lord doesn't uh, feel that's a bit blasphemous but a, a smiling cloud uh, it, it sort of ca- it, it carried for me the sense of transcendent joy and i really wanted to finish on this note the this, the sheer super abundant joy of god there's a few passages in luke 2 verse 10 it talks about the angels peace on earth and joy to all men. The message of Christmas was full of joy. Jesus, we're told at Luke 10, verse 21, was full of joy in the Holy Spirit. In Luke 15, verse 7, he says, there is rejoicing in heaven over every sinner who repents. And since there's millions of them, people repenting all through the world, there's got to be a lot of joy going on in heaven at any time, I would imagine. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, My joy, like these things I've said to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Galatians five we're told that the, spirit of, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, <coughs> among other things, is joy. So God is full of joy. Now, if you put all these things together, holiness, righteousness faithfulness, love, meekness, and joy. Well, I think you get a character that is like us but beyond us, that is so gloriously beyond us, that so holds all this together in perfect symmetry that we can hardly get our heads around it. But I have to tell you, one day when we stand before him and meet him, we will discover that is actually the most glorious person. But sometimes people say to me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see my Auntie Maud. You will not care about your Auntie Maud. You know what I mean? You will all stand in the presence of one who so far transcends all the other little people. We'll all be standing around that place full of awe and wonder and majesty. You have, I believe, the most amazing, spectacular person that has ever been, truly awesome, the original person from which we are all but a pale shadow, once made in his image, and one day the image shall be restored. Amen? Amen. Well done, everybody. Lots of verses and passages and stuff. I wanted to paint a picture from the Bible of what it says about the character of God. Let's just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you've been here tonight. And I pray that you would take my words and somehow speak them into our heart and spirit and fill us with a sense of the love and joy of heaven and of the wonder of who you are. So bless, we pray, your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here's a, here's a good one. I'm, uh, how do you? I think this is Karen. She's had to go now, but she wanted to leave a question. How do you? That's me. Envisage God when you pray. That's an interesting one, isn't it? I think I think it's a combination of of Jesus, but a slightly older, uh, more serene uh, and uh, version of Jesus, like his his dad. And uh, I mean, certainly I've had a number of experience. I remember once when God actually came to me when I was really quite down and desperate and, uh, and told me that he loved me. He said, you're my son and I love you. And that kind of captured a picture which I can't express, but that I have in my heart really. So I, I think for all of us, it will be a, a mixture of images that we have and pictures. I, I think Jesus has got a figure pretty large in it. So I would say to anybody, if in any doubt, picture Jesus, because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So it's pretty fair, isn't it? So we go with that. Now here's one that comes out of what I've said tonight, and I think is quite um, astute. Does God really want us to be afraid to see him or to be unapproachable? No. He wished we'd never sinned in the first place. We We had a total intimate contact from the beginning. What he did with Jesus was to send him to, to renew it and to, re, to bring it back, not renew it, but you know what I mean, to, to actually enable us to come into his presence. So without him, there is no hope. We, we, have, you know, we can't make it on our own. Uh, you know, we don't have any qualifications that we can plead. We don't have any qualities that actually justify us before him we are, you know, so we need to get that clear. That's what I want to do. By God's standards, we are, we are all failed to reach the mark and will not go to heaven at all. There is only one way. So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said it's a narrow gate that leads to life. There is a broad gate that leads to destruction. There is a narrow gate that leads to life. That, that is not because God is unwilling. That is just the way that it has to be. Heaven is what it is, and heaven won't change. I mean, you think, what would happen if God let all sinful people into heaven without being redeemed? It would very soon become like earth. You, you know, what, it wouldn't be heaven anymore, would it? So God, God in love will not bend on this. It is the way it is. If anybody's going to change, we have to change, as I understand it. Okay, that okay. Second question, if God will accept us all into his kingdom, why should we believe in him? Well, I've already touched on this with the person that asked the question. We will not all be received into God's kingdom. The, The New Testament is very clear on that. Much though I would love that everybody could be received into his kingdom, Jesus actually said, as we've already hinted, that that will not happen. That the way is narrow, not because God doesn't want people through, but because we choose not to go. Because sin is a stubborn condition and is not easily dealt with, and only the cross and the grace of God can deal with it and set us free from it. So I hope I've answered that one. That is why we should believe in him. There is no hope. And as I also said to the one that asked that, that was really why I became a pastor 50 years ago. I did not do this for my health. I actually don't like doing things in public. People say, go on. I don't. I was very shy. And it was the inescapable sense that multitudes of people were going to hell without knowing. Now, I found out the years have gone by, they still don't always want to know. But at least I feel I've got to try and get it across Why I'm doing a course like this, really, to help work our way through it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, God made a promise to Israel and in faithfulness, he will keep that promise and he will bring them back, but it cost them dear. I would not recommend it. And who knows who who may yet get through. I mean, the thief on the cross never expected that he get through. And Jesus said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. So my view is that if God can possibly save people, he will. But everything the Bible says indicates that not everybody will be saved, and in fact, it will be a minority. So don't bank on it. Get sorted. But again, you know, our, having our own view of God and what we think can often be a barrier. So we tend to say, well, I know what I think. but what, what I think doesn't matter, which is why I've chucked such a lot of Bible on you all tonight. It's not what I think. I mean, this is what I feel the Bible says, but it's what the Bible says It's not even Bob's, Allen's version of what the Bible says. It's what the Bible actually says. That is God's revelation to us so that we can find our way home. Don't miss it. Okay, why do some of us chase, seek understanding of a God, of, of who God is all of our lives whilst knowing that we'll never come close to understanding him? Well, that's another good one. There is a kind of paradox involved. I think we will get close to understanding him, but only by his revelation. So, you know, we won't won't understand God by thinking it out with our pure brains. We're unable to do that. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit comes to us and reveals God to us as we come to him with a humble heart. That's the key thing. If we come to God saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help, teach me, show me who you are. I, I feel like I've been on a journey for all my years as a Christian, discovering more and still feel that I am. So, I mean, this talk tonight is a bit of a work in progress in some senses. You know, constantly understanding. But it is a, it is a, it is a glorious voyage of discovery. And in a sense, it's like any relationship, isn't it? You know, I mean, it, it, Deb and I, we are just coming to our golden wedding anniversary. thought, I'd just put that in there. <laughs> and we feel that's a little bit of an achievement along the way. But I mean, for 50 years, we've been walking together. And learning about each other, and we don't know everything, do we? I mean, I know most I think but... <laughs> and she probably knows even more, but we don 't know everything, and that is part of the richness of a relationship you know we we don't get right inside another person's soul to see them on the inside um, and uh, but God gives to us his spirit so that we have revelation and we can learn and grow in that. So, but it's, a, it's a, a voyage of discovery and adventure. <clears throat> Do you think Christians today hold God in awe as did people like Isaiah? No. I fear that's one of our greatest weaknesses in our modern culture. We've lost a sense. We call everything awesome, but the one that truly is awesome. And that seems a cruel paradox, really. I mean, as Jesus said, don't fear men, fear God. Fear God. You say, well, I don't like to fear God. I like to feel God's all lovey dovey. Well, a little bit of fear will not go bad. That will not go awry. In fact, you know, if you love God, if you love God with holy fear, that you will have, you will get near to the right balance. That is what I believe, as I understand the Bible. How does this affect our relationship with Him? That's the other half of that question. That's an interesting question, isn't it? I think it. You know, I mean, I feel part of it. I, I've, we've grown up. We've grown up in a welfare society where we're always kind of being looked after, and we don't realize how tough. You know, people that, funny enough, you often find people in third world countries where they get really tough lives have a much greater faith and belief in God than we do. You know, we live in our welfare state where everything's looked after and protected. We don't actually realise that these, these issues will not be covered by the welfare state. Whether you get to heaven or hell will not be covered by any kind of pension that you can pay into. It is you and God. It's as stark as that. We have to face the reality of who God is, not who we might like him to be. I think we'll find when we finally know him, and hopefully we're all growing in that, that actually how he is is the best way that he could be. And we will love him for that. Uh, So how does that affect our relationship? Well, i say my my prayer is that that our relationship, for everybody that come on these courses, it will be well-founded and based on the reality and not on our own imagination of what we think God is. Oh, now, here's a good one. Does God have a physical body like we have a physical body? No, I would say God has a supra-physical body. In other words, God is more by far than we are, not less. So Jesus can manifest as easy as pie. He can go through a wall and pop up in the room inside. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, funnily enough, the science is almost you know it's almost reaching out towards those kinds of concepts you know that they say that that you know we're we're just loads of atoms sort of electrons and neutrons and protons all spinning around in complicated combinations that's all we are physically so god is able to he's the creator he created us so he can manifest himself however he wants to be so god is not ghostly god is ultimate reality does that make sense? Ooh. If no sin can enter heaven, does Jesus forgive and purify all believers? Yes. That is the deal. It's the free gift of God in Christ that you get a completely free ticket. How good is that? That is why it's good news. Now, can I block my copybook? Yes, you can. But everything indicates that once you've committed your life to him, there is a kind of an open channel and you can receive forgiveness again and again. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A good news that saved us once and then left us to, to, get, to delve into the mud and get all mucky again and had no answer for that wouldn't be very good news, would it? You know what I mean? Human experience is that we mess up all over the place. Even even when we come to moments of high commitment, faithfulness and, and sticking sticking with it is not a strong human characteristic. So we've been marred in some of our fundamental characteristics. So we need really a gospel, a good news that can cover the reality of what human beings are. Okay. So I believe we are we can be completely forgiven. And somebody did say, well, what about if you, you know, if you sin before you go and you don't have time to repent over it, I believe you're covered. I think if you've already had a relationship with Christ and you've walked with him, he knows that and you're covered. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. So they are covered, forgiven, and you are uh, reinstated and in God's presence. Good. Okay, that's done all the questions. Any others that come just as a matter of interest while we're talking? Yeah, the one about can God manifest in a body? Yes, yeah. yeah, God is spirit. But, but spirit, as far as I can understand, is a much higher level of being. So, you know, if, you, if you're that higher level, you can manifest in lower levels, no problem. So God is spirit, but, you know, we're spirits but we're spirits in bodies, but we don't have the creative capacity that God has. But God could manifest in body as well. He did Christ. Does God have a body? Yeah, he did that in Jesus, of course. So he manifested himself in the flesh and and can do that. What would God look like? Well, that kind of follows from that, doesn't it? I'm sure he does not look like a spider or a caterpillar. You may be glad to know that. You know, and I say that as an extreme statement It it seems to me inevitable that though God could manifest however he wanted to, I think he'll probably look quite like us. That is my instinct. I can't say that. But I think he'll shine a lot brighter. I think he will exude power beyond anything that we've ever known. That would be my sense. But I think his, his actual shape, I don't think he'll be like a cloud of smoke wafting about know, like an ethereal spirit. I think he will be embodied in some glorious way. And certainly the book of Revelation shows God, you know, sitting on the throne. And, uh, and while I'm not sure there's a clear picture of who he is, there is such dynamic power and energy that emanates from him. I think that's really what stopped John from totally capturing a sense of his visage. But my feeling is that when, when it all comes down to it, he will look... Uh, Somewhat like us, because he's merciful and, and, and we're made in his image. And while that is spiritually in his image, I think physically too. I mean, why would he make us like we are? Well, I suppose there are reasons why he made us like we needed a couple of legs for locomotion, we need a couple of arms to do things and you know, whatever. And you could say, well, he doesn't need any of that. But again, I still have to come back to say, my own instinct is this is just me, I haven't got this from anywhere that he will look like us. The picture in John 1 is, is a glorious picture. Actually, I'll read it. And then, with that, we'll, we'll finish, I think, for tonight. Bless you all. Next week is our last one. Um, so I wouldn't say you get a prize for coming to the last one, but we should be really glad uh, to see you. And we might have some news as to where we're going after this. Um, Again, well, I'm looking for a bit of feedback to see whether you... I mean, in a sense, if you're here, I suppose it's it's been somewhat helpful. So that encourages me to think that we we would try to go on with this. And certainly, I would love to go on to speak more, in more detail about what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. I mean, there is a phenomenal and beautiful logic about the, the work of God in Christ. But in Revelation chapter 1... And verse 12, he says, "'I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, "'and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, "'and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man.'" Well, there you go. "'Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and "'with a golden sash around his chest, "'and his hair and his head were white like wool.'" as white as snow, a bit like Moses, who came down from sitting, from meeting with God. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Phenomenal sound. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, dead, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. My well, asset. The awesome splendor. So that was a good a good passage to finish on. He placed his right hand on me. He said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, I am the living one. I was dead and behold I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Thanks, (laughs) Doreen.